Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go. From the early 1700s up through the 1830s, Africans were a part of a complex and layered history of the once indomitable British Empire, with all the traveling from places like Bristol and Liverpool to the Gold Coast, St. Christopher, Nevis to Jamestown. Not only were they enslaved, but they shaped the politics of abolition, maritime warfare, business enterprise, and international travel in ways that most never imagined. Today, we touch the surface of the wealth of knowledge that is the Black Georgians. This Education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and, and more America. yacht sailed on to Bequi, a perfectly uncivilized island with no airfield and few cars. The royal barge headed for Port Elizabeth, where the entire population lined the shore and watched as the hapless royal helmsman nearly rammed the pier with the royal barge. Her Majesty wasn't pleased. Past the Prime Minister's boatyard to the Prime Minister's hotel for the Prime Minister's tea party. The Queen demonstrating with practiced ease the art of holding a teacup while walking along, shaking hands and talking to people all at the same time. Then a present, a local craftsman had made a model of her favorite ship. It was just like the real thing, standing at anchor in the bay. Jamaica is a very free and liberal country. And uh, the people uh, are very expressive. Uh, and I'm certain that you would have seen the spectrum of expressions yesterday. Um, there are issues here which are, as you would know, unresolved. Um, but your presence gives an opportunity for those issues to be placed in context, put front and center, and to be addressed uh, in as best as we can. Uh, but Jamaica is, as you would see, uh, a country that is very proud of our history, very proud of what we have achieved. And uh, we are moving on. And we intend to attain, in short order, our development goals uh, and fulfill our true ambitions and destiny as an independent, uh, developed, prosperous country. 
So our last episode 13 featured a voice that you may have recognized. It was the Pulitzer Prize winning black female journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who you may have heard had authored the still controversial 1619 Project, the account at the heart of the memory laws nationwide that are in opposition to basically the historical record of the United States. And the basic story is about the middle passage for some black people who were eventually purchased to help the upstart British colony at the time as slaves. Now at that time, there weren't really that many blacks among those English colonialists, but the end of the century was different. By then, there would be 11,100 in the North Americas and even more in the British Caribbean. There was a reported 310,500 down there by the end of the 17th century. And by the end of the 18th, one million enslaved Africans were in the British Caribbean, working about 3,000 hours per year producing sugar, coffee, and cotton. Britain, at last, was catching up in the business. And this would eventually be called the Georgian Era, a period of British history from 714 to about 1837, named after King George I, second, third, and fourth. This era was a time of immense social change in Britain. It was the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. <coughs> slavery. Huge increases in immigration to Canada. <coughs> slavery. And the American colonies. <coughs> slavery. And other parts of the Caribbean. Slavery. So with all this traveling, conquering, pillaging, and exploitation, you know there had to be some notable black folks somewhere in the mix, right? Well, there were. And not all of them were common slaves. Many stood out as extreme personalities, rebels, abolitionists, and accomplices. On the other side of the break, we'll dip into more from this period, the Georgian period, and the descent and achievement of these black Georgians. We'll hear from author and historian S.I. Martin from our legacy program when we return. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions? Or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person? You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life, in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast where we're headed you can find out more at americanhumanist.org and blacknonbelievers.org that's the american humanist association at americanhumanist.org and on facebook search us at black nonbelievers of dc and black nonbelievers at blacknonbelievers.org find us online support today check us out For hundreds of years, the sun never set on the British Empire, and whether Canada or Jamaica, New Zealand or Hong Kong, Great Britain still stands out as one of the modern world's most powerful military and colonial forces, and part of the reason this program is in English. But like its predecessors, Britain's power was amassed on the backs of force, imposition, and some of the ugliest hours in humanity. 
It was the labor, value, and intellect of Africans, Caribbeans, and African Americans fighting in revolutionary war, directing maritime strategy, and supporting the upper class that made possible Britain's industrial revolution. And during the Georgian period, all these groups crossed paths in the New World, often to seek refuge. By the mid-1700s, one in every 20 Londoners were of African descent, making London one of the blackest cities outside of Africa in the world. Historian Steve Martin is working hard to change perceptions about the history of black people in Great Britain and their invaluable contributions to culture and progress via lecturing and speaking out. Nearly 20 years ago, Steve founded the 500 Years of Black London Walks and has consistently encouraged and championed the provisions of plaques, street names, and street furniture to this end. Join us as we continue to explore more from acts of liberation to the core of dissent with our brethren, Steve S.I. Martin. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for um, that very generous introduction. And um, I'd just like to extend um, my uh, gratitude for being here and having an opportunity really to uh, take up uh, about 45 minutes of your time um, with a really interesting subject. Um, a subject which, um, as was said in the preface, has a lot to do with um, the religious conditions in Black America, the religious conditions uh, globally uh, for people of African origin. And um, we're talking about the Black Georgian period, Black people in Georgian England. And um, why this is important is because we're looking at this stretch of time, this chunk of history between 1714 to 1836, Georges one to four, uh, the first of the fourth Georges, when a huge amount is happening. Your side of the planet, the um, North America below Canada is um, getting um, its independence from, uh, the, from uh, uh, British influence. You have got this explosion of literacy. You've got Britain itself becoming the largest trader and marketer of human lives on the planet. You've also got, as an extension of that, the beginnings of what we call multi-ethnic Britain. A whole spectrum of people of African origin are living here. And um, a majority of them, interestingly enough, are not actually enslaved, but some people have occupied all sorts of intermediary um, intermediate, excuse me, uh, descriptions that we might have time to go into later. As I said, it's a huge, huge subject. But for our purposes this evening, we're really looking at, um, if I'll share my screen, um, voices of dissent and voices of praise. We are looking at a period when uh, populations of African origin, um, which have been moved across the Atlantic have become indoctrinated very, very heavily with um, aspects or uh, variants of uh, traditional British Christianity and of course the Christianities of the various um, European countries which um, were involved in these trades. But in terms of um, this country, what you see is although um, aspects of Christianity are taught. It's in a very specific manner. It's in a very doctored uh, fashion. You have most tellingly 
the absence of direct Church of England teachings, Church of England participation, which we'll talk about later. And you have um, the growth of a lot of non-conformist churches having an influence, particularly in the Caribbean, which is where my family is from, and in parts of North America as well. Various Anabaptists, Moravians, the Council of Huntingdon's connection, a whole slew of outside outsider Christian organizations, never to forget the Quakers, are involved as well in imparting the gospel to um, our ancestors. Um, so when I'm talking about a diversity of people of African origin in these islands, I am talking about people who range from the enslaved to the everyday working stiffs, to the intellectual elite, to the sons and daughters and families of um, African local traditional leaders who for a few centuries before this one, this 18th, have already been bringing their families over, been trading, been living in splendor. And um, that's a whole other subject which we don't have time to get into, but you can imagine where that one can go. So we're looking at a very, very diverse community, but this whole issue of descent, it's at the core of um, African self-description. It's the core of notions of autonomy and liberation. And it takes many, many forms. The first um, slide I'd like to share with you is actually from just before the Georgian period. We're taking the Georgian period to begin in 1714. But it gives you an idea of one aspect of um, descent that I'm very, very interested in. Um, in fact, we're going back to 1687. Um, and this is an extract from uh, the London Gazette of the 5th of January of that year. And um, I'll just read this out for those of you um, unfamiliar with the um, uh, 17th century newsprint. It says, on the 30th of December last, run away from Mr. Thomas Dimmock at the Lion Office in the Tower, a black boy with about 10 pounds in silver and one guinea. He's aged about 16, wore three colored coats, two gray, his uppermost cinnamon, the uppermost cinnamon color, lined with black, black shag facings on the sleeves, gray stockings, a silver collar about his neck. Engraven, Thomas Dimmock at the Lion Office. Whoever shall apprehend him and bring him to the Lion Office in the tower shall have two guineas reward and charges born, speaks bad English, has holes in both his ears. Now, clearly, this is someone who's run away from the Tower of London, and he has run away from the, ignore the spelling, it's actually, uh, <laughs> they didn't have formalized spellings, um, um, until the end of the of the uh, 18th century. So he actually run away from the Lion office, not the Lyon office, as some might read it. Um, this is a, a tower within the uh, Tower of London complex, which held Moroccan lions. And the keeper of these lions, Mr. Thomas Dimmock, obviously had this young boy, whose name, well, I came to understand, given name was Edward Francis, Edward Francis would be there, obviously, to set off the glory, to offset the glory of the King of the Beasts. And um, this young boy, aged about 16, in the middle of winter, in the deep midwinter, he runs away and he's wearing three coats. He must have been freezing. But he's also wearing, the description tells us, a silver collar about his neck, if you can follow the bouncing ball, a silver collar, collar about his neck engraven Thomas Dimmock at the Lion office, and there's a reward out for him as well. I don't have the time to go into this full story, but I will say it has an ultimately happy ending. 
we might have time in the Q&A to explore a little of that. But why I'm mentioning this is that this is at the core of dissent, the need to first self-liberate, and by that act of self-liberation, self one liberates others. One moves away from absolute, that state of uh, consent um, within um, uh, structures that will enslave you. And um, here you have a perfect example of it, someone running away with a huge amount of money for 1687 in East London, a huge amount of money. But um, he wasn't doing this alone. I have read hundreds and hundreds of um, 17th and 18th and 19th century newspapers. And in the 17th and 18th centuries in particular, you find hundreds upon hundreds, numberless advertisements just like this. A lot of young uh, enslaved people who found themselves in these islands, they mistakenly, until a point, found themselves, considered themselves free and would make a run for it. And there was every opportunity of them to um, have a good, clear run to their own freedom, especially once they became, the boys in particular, um, teenagers, as we'd say nowadays. They, um, that, that they would take off and join communities of runaways or communities of um, underclass white people as well throughout these lands. It's an interesting phenomenon, but so many people were doing it. I love these stories because it is about young people making these decisions to craft their own future and make their own way in the world. And it's a form of dissent, um, which I think is particularly special uh, because uh, it is within their power to do so, making an extraordinary set of decisions. Um, let me move on. Dissent in another way, um, just culture, the culture of uh, creating, creating black culture, which as typical chronocentric 20th and 21st century people, we believe that black cultures in the West uh, or in Western lands are somehow specific or unique, particular to our own centuries, forgetting that uh, London by this day, the 1760s, is uh, one of the largest black cities on the planet. We are talking about population at its high point. Some people give ridiculous figures. They talk about um, 20,000, 30,000 black people in London. No, well, to my uh, analysis, we're looking at maybe a very high point of 14,000, but you're still looking at close to one face in 20 being similar to mine. So clearly there is a black culture of sorts and is expressed here from uh, the London Chronicle of uh, February 1764, which tells us how among the sundry fashionable routes or clubs that are held in town, that of the blacks or Negro servants isn't the least. On Wednesday night last, no less than 57 of them, men and women, supped, drank and entertained themselves with dancing, music, uh, consisting of with dancing and music, consisting of violins, French horns, and other instruments at a public house in Fleet Street till four in the morning. No whites were allowed to be present, for all the performers were blacks. This is interesting because it's the only sign, the only um, uh, uh, note I've come across which mentions um, segregated entertainments. Um, 
because most of these black routes and hops, as it was said in the opening statements of this piece, were uh, fashionable. They're things that men in particular of uh, leisure and means would resort to. It was fashionable to go to uh, black parties, black routes, black entertainments. Um, back in London in the 1760s, they were seen as, a, you know, imagine in today's sense, still an exotic form of entertainment. But um, this is the first example I've seen of them be, their, uh, being segregated proceedings, um, which, again, is an interesting phenomenon in London. Because you imagine, here you are, living at the heart of the empire, in the belly of the beast. And it is bizarre that it is here, in the belly of the beast, at the heart of the empire, that uh, black men and women can enjoy um, a broader range of freedoms than they can anywhere else in the Atlantic world. They have freedom of association. Um, they uh, can educate themselves. They can own property. They have rights in law to represent themselves and be represented, to give evidence, to uh, pursue justice. It's totally odd what's happening here and unusual. Um, we might have time to go into uh, some of the background of that later, but I'm just trying to rush through um, various forms of uh, dissent. Um, okay, <laughs> let's get back to the religious part. One of the interesting aspects of my work is that I get the opportunity to dive deeply into parish records and um, notes and um, material regarding baptisms, burials, and marriages of um, individuals in various communities. I mostly look at London, but also the rest of Britain. And what you see in the 18th century, in the Georgian period, is a phenomenal rush of uh, black people um, who have ended up in these islands, this extraordinary rush to be baptized, to be part of a faith congregation. And it's bizarre, doubly bizarre, because the congregations that they seek most of all to be part of are the um, Church of England, the Anglican congregations. And remember, the Anglican congregations, certainly in the Caribbean, and I'd imagine also in North America, were the most hostile to uh, black membership, uh, black associations. And I'm old enough to have parents <laughs> who remembered, mom and dad, they both remembered in Antigua, where my family's from, that the... Um, Anglican Church, the Church of England Church in those islands, in the capital, St. John's, that was the white people's church. Um, people who looked like me couldn't even be buried in, uh, that, in, the, in those uh, churchyards, those graveyards, back into the 1950s. Uh, so great was the divide between Anglicanism and blackness. So all the more strange that in the 18th century, you have thousands upon thousands of black people being baptized, being buried uh, throughout these country, um, throughout these islands. Um, this is an example from Holy Trinity Church, Clapham on Clapham Common, from 1792, and you can see highlighted at the bottom 
It's um, the entry is for Naimbana, Henry Granville Naimbana, an adult and African from Sierra Leone. Um, this is an interesting case in its own because Naimbana here was one of the sort of black elite who was um, settling here or passing through here. And this is a phenomenon which has been going on for centuries before. It's actually still going on today, to be frank. Um, and Naimbana was also known as the Black Prince. There's a famous um, Christian evidence chapbook which was made about him. Some nice woodcut on the front showing him being very um, goodly and Christian and charitable. But um, one of the things which fascinates me is why there were so many black people going to the church, being baptized. And the glib reason is, of course, that there's this need for praise, for worship, to be absorbed by these um, higher institutions by becoming um, part of this uh, family of believers and having equality in the eyes of God, that we would also have equality under the laws of men. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, although, of course, there was that need for praise and worship and knocking tambourines and the hyperventilating stuff. But there's another side to it, and a very practical side it is too. And again, it's a part of this whole descent and self-creation. The reality in this period was that um, in an age without um, a, large, a strong support, strong social support networks, by becoming members of faith communities, Anglican faith communities, black individuals be were, would become known to the parish. And by extension, they would be able to satisfy settlement examinations. This means that they would have access to parish funds when they fell on hard times. This is really interesting because you do see case after case of people who have fallen on hard times, particularly black women. I think I've got a case coming up in the next slide who um, end up, I'll use the period phrase, excuse my language, with bastard children. They end up with bastard children and they are obliged to apply to parish funds. Women who can prove that they are members of this faith community, that they are known to the parish, will have access to that money. Famously in the 1720s, um, the black woman at uh, Brixton Causeway, Brixton Road, she managed to get a large <laughs> amount of money and um, material support for the care of her bastard child. Whereas um, the women, well, hopefully on the next slide, did not. If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our legacy video program archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc. All one word directly. You can find every legacy video from season one and season two there, plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you online. The first example is of uh, Sarah Paulson. I'll just describe it. There's, there's some really horrible stories in all of this dry text. Some really horrible, horrible stories, particularly this one of Sarah Paulson, single woman, 
that she was born of a Negro woman, the property of John Gray and the island of Jamaica, and that he, the said John Gray, brought her, this examinant, as his servant from Jamaica to the Kingdom of Great Britain. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, they're living in the parish of Tottenham in the county of Middlesex, that then she, proving with child, her said master took her to a lodging in the parish of St. Mary Lambeth for two months before her lying in. Long story short, this poor woman has become impregnated by uh, John Gray. Um, and John Gray takes her, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the geography of London, but he takes the woman he has impregnated, he sends her uh, from Tottenham to um, uh, the borough of um, uh, Lambeth, basically um, just hard by the Thames near Westminster Bridge, the lying-in hospital. You know, the year 1790, lying-in hospital, what, 1767 it was opened. That's a very, very new thing. Most people don't go to the lying-in hospital because people will have children where they live. There is a reason why Sarah Paulson is not giving birth where she lives in Tottenham. Obviously, the child will look too much like John Gray. So um, here she is. Um, and she was delivered of um, a male bastard child which hasn't yet been baptized and which child is now living. And um, there are other records that show that you know, she's trying to get um, um, uh, apply for uh, a settlement. She's trying to uh, pass a settlement examination. Um, but it's unlikely she got it because she didn't live in that parish. Um, similarly, the other example from 1822, a bit outside our time frame. Actually, it's inside our time frame, but my interest frame, I should say. Um, we've got Harriet Lane, the wife of William Lane of Marshall Street, London, who is a native of the island of Barbados in the West Indies and has never gained settlement in this country. And her set isn't taken in consequence of her being a black woman, not knowing the nature of an oath. So this idea of becoming part of the community, becoming known, uh, joining this community in worship, it served a number of purposes. One, there's a spiritual aspect. You could consider yourself being at the heart of power, the heart of um, the decision maker in communication with the decision makers in your parish. And even though everyone was unequal in life, you'd be equal in death. You know, you go to all of these churchyards, which are still around, graveyards, which are still um, doing business today. And you see all of these gravestones of um, people, black and white, various stations in life, unequal in life, but in death, yeah, they've all got their mansions and they're all very happy, no doubt. Um, moving on. Okay, yeah, some of the voices that we do hear in this period, which is a fascinating period because there's this boost in literacy. There's this uh, real upsurge in um, black thought. Something revolutionary is happening. For the first time, you see black thought in English um, being disseminated to a majority white readership. A uh, fascinating revolutionary period just in that sense alone. And uh, some of the strongest voices are the voices of um, women. Um, in 1773, in, um, here in London, you saw the uh, uh, publication of uh, Phyllis Wheatley's poems on subjects, uh, religious and moral. Well, Wheatley had been uh, taken out of Africa as a young, very young woman. And um, she was, if you can read 
um, as you can read here, follow uh, follow uh, uh, the cursor around that says how she Phyllis Wheatley, Negro servant to Mr. John Wheatley of Boston, and it was in that household of that lawyer, John Wheatley, that Boston lawyer, that she was actually encouraged to read and write, not just read and write. She having shown great alacrity um, with handling text, um, went on to study Greek and Latin. Um, and she was considered a freak, obviously, given the uh, sensibilities of the time. But she uh, went on to write poetry as a very young woman. And that poetry was uh, first published here. Phyllis actually came to London uh, with one of the Wheatley family, and the uh, her book of poems was published here. It's a very strange read, I have to say. There are some great poems in there, such as On Imagination, which I think is just one of the greatest dissenting poems, regardless of subject, ever. It's a great freedom poem, because it describes how, um, through our own willpower, our own ability to dream, um, our, you know, to build our own inner worlds, we can, by extension, free ourselves physically as well. Uh, dreaming isn't simply dreaming. But most famously, she, um, or infamously, she also published um, a poem on being taken from Africa to America, where she reminds her readers, her white readers, um, to remember Christians, Negroes, Black as Cain may be refined and join the angelic train. So, you know, we're back in the realm of um, uh, religious belief again. And she's saying something very, very serious here, very, very, um, which of course has uh, all sorts of implications for our own time. Um, she's in exhorting her fellow Christians that even Negroes, black as Cain, remember Christians, she starts her closing couplet, remember Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. So yeah, even though uh, those ex experiences of slavery have been, survived, have been um, gone through, uh, even though oppression is um, as everyday as breathing, at the end of the day, we can join these angelic trains and um, be together as one um, in the afterlife. It's quite a read. And you know, there's a lot of debate about what exactly she meant by it. Was she being underhandedly badgering and sarcastic through these comments? But the reality is that there are still communities of faith, black communities of faith, that take these things literally. So I'm just going to leave that there. I'm sure we'll get back to it later. On the right, um, the image you see is one of uh, Mary Prince, um, a, uh, an enslaved woman who had survived horrifying experiences, torture, abuse, and uh, removal of her children in the Caribbean, and um, who in 1812 had that set of experiences published. Um, why I mention Mary Prince in particular is really to introduce this whole set of um, 
literate people, uh, people um, who are having this extraordinary impact on culture, art, history, and letters. These black Georgians, you know, we'll, we'll meet them in a short while, who um, are really uh, not looked at in a serious way. And also to show the impact of um, women's lives in all of this, because many of these histories have been cast as uh, the histories of uh, just adult men, adult men who are here as sailors or adventurers, and um, that huge chunk of female experience um, and information and knowledge has been very much overlooked until fairly recently. And uh, in many of the parish records, you can see there are actually more women than men. But again, given the sensibilities of the times and who puts histories together and why they do so, that's something which happens. Um, moving on, yeah. Oh, yes. This, this is interesting. This is from the year 1786. As I said, by the 1780s, London has a population, a black population of, say, um, between 12 and a half to maybe at the highest 14,000, but a large visible minority population. And amongst them are a thousand or so individuals and their families who are, um, were originally black loyalists from North America. These are um, soldiers and sailors who have fought with the British forces in exchange for their freedom during the uh, Revolutionary War, the American War of Independence, as you will. Of course, as the British uh, lost that set of campaigns and that chunk of the planet, the formerly enslaved uh, soldiers, they have to <laughs> try and make their way out of uh, the, what was becoming the United States. Uh, some of them went to Bermuda, some went to Jamaica, I don't know why. Um, many thousands went to Canada, to Nova Scotia, which was a British possession. And um, long story short was a thousand or so of them came over to Britain and settled here in large numbers, boosting the black uh, community visible community considerably. Many of them were people without trades, were people who um, had no uh, marketable skills, and they ended up either as street entertainers like uh, Billy Waters or Joseph Johnson, famous London black beggars. That's a whole other uh, set of presentations and uh, studies. Or they ended up simply as beggars, starving, about the streets, as one of them, uh, Shadrach Furman, uh, wrote in a letter. They were starving um, about the streets and also freezing in those terrible winters of the 1780s. The solution to these large numbers of black people on the streets, um, intruding upon the observation of the great and the good, was to deposit them in uh, Sierra Leone. <clears throat> now this is, it, 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 it's just such an atrocious set of circumstances. Um, and I'm more than happy to do, I'd be more than happy to do an entire uh, presentation on this subject alone. But you had two public houses which were set up as places where these uh, ex-servicemen and their families 
could collect six pence a day, basically as a dole away, you know, um, social support. And um, in the summer of 1786, it was put forward that in order to take this money, if you um, continue to take this money, you had to agree to be shipped out to Sierra Leone as a colonist. Basically, they're just getting rid of the people. Um, over 300 um, so-called colonists continued to receive the money and ultimately were taken off the streets of London, put on board three ships which were waiting in the Thames at Deptford, and they were sailed down to, dumped, I should say, in Sierra Leone. Very few of them survived that experience after five years. Only a handful of them um, were, survived, uh, were still alive. Um, they were out of sight, out of mind. And that's the one instance of literal um, ejection of um, black people from these islands, which is really uh, there as a solid historical fact. Um, obviously, I could talk about that a lot, but I wanted to draw your attention to uh, these extracts, these two columns from the passenger lists. Um, one of the experiences of, um, to carry on from the last frame, the last slide of black women and black men was that they did have that freedom of association which allowed them to marry uh, non-black people, marry white people. And it's very interesting to me that in amongst the passengers going down to uh, Sierra Leone, you have uh, black women who are married to white men as on the left-hand column and uh, black, excuse me, this is getting in the way. <laughs> I think it's black men who are married to white uh, women. Um, but um, you, can, you can see for yourself, uh, my screen's a bit blocked out, but there are uh, black women married to white men, black men married to white women. And for me, the question is why they were choosing to leave London and go down to find their fortune in Sierra Leone. Were they absolutely deluded? Did they think they'd have um, better fortunes out there? Uh, were was the situation for these couples so bad in London that they chose to uh, literally jump ship? We don't know. But um, it's a very, very curious set of circumstances. But more than 300 people were just thrown out of the country. And Sierra Leone was um, a strange uh, part of this whole jigsaw puzzle as well because it was to Sierra Leone that uh, many of the black loyalists ultimately made their way. They found their way there. And Sierra Leone became this sort of uh, pole in the Black Atlantic, and uh, the Black Atlantic vision. It sort of represented freedom, self-recreation, a lot of uh, uh, black uh, adventurers and um, thinkers found their way there, and freedom fighters, people like the Maroons, from Jamaica after the uh, Second Maroon Wars um, in 1794, after uh, the Maroons lost that war against the British in Jamaica, many of them, rather than being summarily executed, were taken out of the island and dumped in uh, Sierra Leone. But what you have then is this huge spike in religiosity in Sierra Leone. You have, uh, uh, black pastors going out, choosing to go out to Sierra Leone. These pastors, some of them being amongst the most literate um, uh, and highest profile public intellectuals 
in the black community on both sides of the Atlantic. These were people like uh, John Morant and uh, Boston King, who had studied extensively, were very well connected amongst nonconformist circles. Um, they weren't just your everyday uh, hyperventilating pastor. They really did know the um, holy writ. <laughs> and um, they chose to go to Sierra Leone. Both John Morant and Boston King had Sierra Leone as one of their goals and to spread the gospel back in Africa. I'm just going to read a bit from what um, uh, Boston King, uh, his, ho his whole vision of Christianity um, and Africa. He says, in the year 1787, I found my mind drawn out to commiserate my poor brethren in Africa, and especially when I considered that we who had the happiness of being brought up in a Christian land where the gospel is preached, were notwithstanding our great privileges involved in gross darkness and wickedness. I thought what a wretched condition then must those poor creatures be in who never heard the name of God or of Christ, nor had any instruction afforded them with respect to a future judgment. As I had not the least prospect at that time of ever seeing Africa, I contented myself with pitying and praying for the poor benighted inhabitants of that country which gave birth to my forefathers. So, yeah, that whole idea of um, uh, a, a religion of Christianized, uh, erudite Christianized people in black people in the West that you know would go back to Africa and give them the benefit of our experience through the gospel. That's something which is part of this whole movement of people and. These pastors, not just in um, the 18th century, like uh, Boston King and John Morant and John Leal, they don't just cycle through London in the 18th century. It goes on to the 19th and the 20th century. And yeah, this country is still a great vector of those belief systems entering uh, continental Africa. Um, I could talk about that forever again. Let me move on. Yes. So, yeah, Black Autobiography and the Sea. This is one of the um, really interesting things and chunks of forgotten Black history that obsess me. And that is the relationship between um, communities of African origin and water in general, <laughs> and, uh, but particularly um, um, ocean-going activities. Of course, we remember that we're in a period the 18th century, when Great Britain, Britain was always at war uh, with France and or Spain. And the Royal Navy had uh, an insatiable need for labor, for manpower, for people who are strong enough and smart enough to um, man um, uh, frigates, schooners, sloops, these ocean-going war machines, which were at the cutting edge of the technology of the time. And given the superabundance of black labor in the Atlantic world, it was no surprise that there were a huge number of black men on, um, in the Royal Navy. And um, yes, on the left, next to the portrait of the gentleman we might talk about in a while, you can see a list of um, black writers. You can see almost that whole first slew of black writers and uh, philosophers and thinkers had 
passed through the Royal Navy. This was, gives them this experience, which is almost unique, not just of mobility, seeing other places, um, but also of having the possibility of gaining rank in the Royal Navy. And you see black men having ranks, not just as landsmen and cooks at the lowest level, but also many petty officers and senior petty officers. And um, one occasion of a black ship's captain, which is a whole other story, Captain John Perkins. But more than anything else, you see that these men have the opportunity, or are obliged, I should say, to live amongst white men. And they are working fighting amongst white men and they can see them, they suddenly start to understand that, you know, they can see them as equals, as colleagues, uh, as people they are surviving amongst, as social animals. And um, a lot of this is transferred into some of the political thought of and writings of some of these gentlemen. But it's a phenomenon of the times and London was where a lot of this publishing happened because these people weren't just... Um, writers, they were also very active abolitionists, uh, most of them. Particularly this gentleman, I'm going to run out of time, I can see, um, Alauda Equiano, um, great piece of PR here. Alauda Equiano was the first um, uh, leader of uh, the black community, the first high-profile civil black civil rights leader in this country. And um, he was the first person to give some account of being transported across the Atlantic as dehumanized property. Um, his narrative um, uh, was a, as we now say, bestseller and um, it came out in 1789. And um, it went into several editions. And we, he is credited with being one of the game changers in the abolition movement, which we have to remember was the first um, large scale mass political movement in Britain's history. I mean, it's very important to remember that there were people such as Alauda Equiano, Otaba Kubuano, um, and others who were published, who were also walk going around these islands, appearing in public and uh, putting a literal face to the horrors of slavery. I'm going to have to rush through the rest of this because um, I am going to run out of time. Talking about dissent, straight up dissent, <laughs> taking things to the streets here in uh, 1780. Uh, this is a representation of the taking of Newgate, the burning, plundering, and destruction of Newgate Jail in 1780 by the rioters. This riot is a riot we don't talk about much in uh, British history. It's not discussed much. Um, it's the, they're the Gordon riots, and the Gordon riots are occurred in the first uh, week of June, 1780. They started off as uh, anti-Catholic riots, um, demonstrations against perceived expansion of civil rights to Catholics. Um, day one, the rioters attacked the buildings of uh, uh, prominent Catholics, attacked Catholic, the embassies of Catholic countries, um, walked around shouting, no popery. Day two, this is London. The riot becomes just a free-for-all. Everyone's joining in. The poor of London are flooding in from Mayfair to um, Tower Hill. They have taken over the city. Upwards of 600 people were murdered. An additional 200 people drank themselves to death. Um, one of the things that was done here was the burning down of jails. 
And here you can see an attack on Newgate Jail. And if you can follow the bouncing ball, now on the right-hand side of the screen, going in, you can see that there are a number that was said of blacks and tawnies. Blacks and tawnies being basically black people and people of mixed background who were involved in the piling up of combustible stuffs outside Newgate Jail and burning down the jail keeper's door and thereby releasing um, a goodly number of prisoners. And this is going on all over the city. Jails are being burnt down. People are being released. Um, they actually released the animals at the Tower of London. So you had giraffes and elephants walking around in the mayhem as well. But um, I'm mentioning this because um, you see large numbers of black people, a disproportionate number of black people who were involved in this riot, um, who were sentenced to hang and their court cases all have similarities, whereas wherein the black person is assumed to be the eminence grise, the um, mastermind behind these attacks on public property. But yeah, nous ça change. I'm Rogier, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. Whoever you talk to in your closet when you prayed this morning, or whatever, but the church, capital C, institution, is a thing. And those have material effects that you cannot deny. No matter how many rainbows and trees your Jesus hugs, which personally I'm not a... I I have interesting views on, um, (laughs) on, on Jesus that gets both sides of the aisle a little upset. Is that how we do things in America, Afghan? Al-Qaeda? Osama? Huh? Is it? Right here. Let's call this the barter system. Hey, I'm a little interested in these two. Oh, oh, is uh, someone hit me and uh, I hit got you with the Jojo? Yeah, he took a lot hey, to your Jojo. Even, even back in the day, like it wasn't like every church didn't agree. Many churches did not agree with Martin Luther King at all. It had nothing to do with the one, nothing to do with what he was doing. Um, he was doing too much too far. Some people even found offense to the way he was talking about black people. It was like, well, God loves everybody, right? Yeah, that's and a they, yeah. They found offense the fact that he was focusing and talking so much um, about black people. It's like, well, God loves everybody, and I can't really. I can't, you know, I don't live a gospel where God only cares about black people. Looking low, and he's working on my behalf. So all I'm going to do is sit back and praise the goodness of Jesus. I'm going to tell who's doing it. I'm going to testify that the Lord is fixing this for me. We have been fed that, that idea that, you know, church is synonymous with civil rights. That's a part of that cultural myth-making that I was... During the pandemic, we took that opportunity to really explore through AfricanAncestry.com, which is a Black-owned business that helps you identify who and where you come from. We took that opportunity to look at all sides of our family. It's a homosexuality case. That's why I've come to ensure that our country prospers. Our people are not taking advantage of homosexuality. does not take root because it hurts many of our young people who get lured into it or forced into it. Yeah. This section of the penal code provides for life sentence. Any person who has carnal knowledge of any person against the order of nature is liable to imprisonment for life. 
95% of the population does not uh, support homosexuality. Politician now, they are fearing for me. They are going to keep killing us and they are sitting us the money that they was making and gave it back to the community, we'd be alright. If they take half the buildings that they used to praise God and gave it to motherfuckers who need God, we'd be alright. It's homeless people out here. Why ain't God letting them stay there? Why these niggas got gold ceilings and shit? Why God need gold ceilings to talk to me? That creature, he called us cockroaches. It quickly links with the statement that was said in Rwanda by trying to bring up another genocide of the LGBT communities. Next time on Where We're Headed. William Davidson, another black revolutionary. He was involved in the Cato Street, um, uh, uh, the Cato Street conspiracy. Uh, he was known, obviously, as Black Davidson from Jamaica. And um, he was a tradesman who got involved with the um, prototypical, you know, early um, uh, workers' rights organizations, the Maryland Reading Society, etc., which recovers basically for this attack, for an attack on Lord Harraby's house at uh, Grosvenor Square. They wanted to blow up the cabinet, to assassinate the cabinet as they sat to dinner. Um, but the Cato Street conspirators were foiled. Here's the famous image of them uh, being foiled up in their loft, just off the Edgware Road. Yes, spot the black man, there's Davidson. And um, they were all hung by the neck until dead, after which they were also quartered. They had their heads cut off as well and stuck on poles. Um, quite gory, but you see a beginning of black involvement in a uh, larger scale sort of revolution and dissent and moving away from religion in a really interesting way through the life of one gentleman who I think I'm going to end on. With, his name is uh, Robert Wedderburn. Robert Wedderburn, full disclosure, is... Um, I don't like to say I have heroes, historical heroes, but he's the person um, I'm most identifying with, I've got to say, because he was born the son of a planter, a white planter in Jamaica, and a black mother who was what life was one of those owned by his father. He was given his freedom as a young person, and he um, grew up with his black family. His... Uh, um, uh, the, the experience which uh, changed him forever was, as a young boy, seeing his uh, grandmother, a woman called Talkie Amy, being stripped to the waist, 
and pinned to the ground and flogged almost to death for the supposed crime of um, putting a spell on a, a European ship in Kingston Harbour, basically Obia, and the ship sank apparently, which instilled in him the hatred of two things. One, obviously, um, a hatred of slavery and enslavement, that condition, as well as a hatred of religion, organized religion. Anything which could allow an elderly woman to be flogged to death uh, on such spurious grounds. Like many thinkers and writers, he makes his way to uh, London. He settles here and he wants to start organizing in some way, but there are very there are huge restrictions um, in the early 1800s on, uh, on assembly, on what you can publish and how and where you can assemble, the numbers who can assemble as well, and what can be discussed. In order for him to overcome this, he has an idea. He will use religion in order to spread his political, um, uh, his political ideas. And to that end, he buys a license. He purchases a license to practice as a Unitarian minister. And by way of a chapel, he rents some rooms above a stable um, in central London. Um, and we know a lot about what went on in these so-called congregations and, and the sermons, so-called sermons that they had, because these meetings were always riddled with government informers. Now, <laughs> Wedderburn uh, was a, re a true revolutionary. Famously, he had his, um, his um, lecture there where he spoke about, uh, is it not right for um, a slave to rise up and kill his master? And of course, the congregation says, yes. Wedderburn, I forgot to say he was also mad, Wedderburn pushed it further and asked the congregation, isn't it also then right for the poor people of England to rise up and kill the Prince Regent, basically the sitting uh, temporary monarch. And of course, everyone says yes. And of course, Wedderburn ends up going into jail, to Dorchester jail for two years. It didn't put him off. He comes out and, you know, he starts publishing and republishing all sorts of things. Um, he's consciously using religion um, against itself. He hated the pomposity of um, uh, priests, he hated uh, the money raking of it. He published a pamphlet um, called, yeah, two pamphlets. One called High Heeled Shoes for Dwarves in Holiness. High Heeled Shoes for Dwarves in Holiness. And another called A Shove for Fat Bottomed Parsons. Um, but to my mind, the greatest thing he did was to start publishing to my, what I believe is the first uh, black uh, owned and published periodical, an axe laid to the root or a fatal blow to oppressors. And uh, this, I think it's issue three we're looking at. You can see here it's published by Robert Wedderburn, Eight Church Court, St. Martin's Lane, London. I could talk about this all day, but this um, edition just hits the ground running. Um, it's entitled Slave Stealing and Murder, tolerated by a British jury. And he starts off, you can see, some of you who might be reading ahead of me, he's writing in Patois, 
This is uh, 1817, the year 1817. He is writing to um, two audiences. One, uh, a white audience who, by this period, and this is an interesting aspect of the cultural period, they will have been familiar with patois, uh, Caribbean, African, and African Caribbean patterns of speech. You know, if you look in the dictionary of a common tongue, or the vulgar tongue, rather, Gross's dictionary of the vulgar tongue, in various editions, you can see that there are um, words of African origin which are entering the language. People are hearing this spoken all the time around them, so they'd have been able to read this and understand it. But it's also being uh, sent out to literate communities in the Caribbean in order that they can uh, to foment dissent because Wedderburn was not like uh, Equiano or all the other writers, Equiano in particular, who's always talking about uh, the benefits of Christianity and how our black and white fellowship in Christ being washed white in the blood of Jesus, we will all be one. And that's the basis for abolition is um, on a, a, a faith basis. Not for this gentleman, not for Robert Wedderburn, he was blood and fire, and um, he was looking for revolution. He wanted the fires that had started in Haiti to spread across the Caribbean. And in this one, he's just outright calling it. Excuse my patois as I read this. Top teeth, top teeth, top teeth. That England man, that white man, the Christian Bokra, teeth me picnic. He hungry, he go yamin. Oh, they got another. He teething my mama. He be Catholic Christian. He roast my mama in the fire for yam. He goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, but you can see where he's going with this. <laughs> you know, he's calling out the church. He's calling out the slavers. Um, it is what he is. If you get the opportunity to access any of this stuff, just washing it. He is a great, um, one of the great, um, um, I'm trying to find ideal word for him. He's just one of the great black thinkers of the period. Um, I'll skip through these because I'm going to start finishing up, winding up. He's also, you can see here, these are um, posters which he'd slap up all around London, uh, talking about his debates at his chapel, as he called the place above the loft in Hopkins Street, and says, taught by a, uh, by a self-taught West Indian, as he describes himself. Um, and oops, there again. Yeah, <clears throat> he was just laying it on the line. Um, and here again, he's just saying, talking about how ex the, the assembly exultingly expressed their desire of hearing of another sable nation freeing itself by the dagger from the base tyranny of their Christian masters. Um, so that's the wonderful, wonderful Robert Wedderburn saying it as it was in 1819. And uh, I'm gonna finish with this image, which is from um, George Cruikshank from the same year, 1819. And it is George Cruikshank's sort of vision of multi-ethnic Georgian hell, um, which shows the most disgusting racial stereotypes. I'm, in fact, I don't even have to explain what's going on here. <laughs> it's just so radiantly uh, depraved. But how familiar is this? As we look around at all of these stereotypes, which are causing such consternation 
to uh, George Crookshank in 1819. You see here, yeah, follow the bouncing ball, you see here the black sailor uh, kicking out the white sailor uh, from the picture. He's, the black sailor is taking the white sailor's work. Uh, you can see the two black boxers here, one of whom is supposedly um, uh, uh, um, Tom Molyneux, the famous boxer, African-American boxer, trained by Bill Richmond, another African-American boxer who owned a public house. Um, a number of uh, very liberal abolitionists are dotted about here. You can see the uh, mixed couples. You can see this mixed couple with a gruesomely rendered child uh, divided in the middle by pigmentation. You can, I'm, I don't have to actually explain too much of this, but if you download a copy of this, uh, The New Union Club by George Cruikshank, it will sort of um, be a doorway into some of the fears which were assailing some parts of British society by the end of the Georgian period, where you had in 1807 the first, the passage of the first um, abolition bill, which stopped the trafficking of people across the Atlantic. But you um, had, would have, we'd have to wait until 1833, 34, until full emancipation. But you still have this black population here, which is spreading, which is growing. Um, other writers uh, like Cobbett are talking about how there's no way he can go in these islands, no hamlet where you won't find this new tribe of sooty-faced children um, who are springing up. And um, I don't need to go into it too much because, you know, these conversations are still being had today, on which point I think I should um, close this up. Well, a special thanks to our friend S.I. Martin for joining us in that legacy program all the way from Manchester, England. I hope that was as enlightening to you all as it was to me. And we're going to keep it going. We've got a few more episodes that are going to close out our first season here at Where We're Headed. Once again, if you haven't found us online, you can catch us at Twitter, WWHpodcasting. That's twitter.com slash WWHpodcasting. And also, please give us some feedback, send in some voice notes, some comments and criticism, or just send us your stories. If you've got stories that you think could fit into what we're trying to tell here in this story of religious dissent throughout the history of African-Americans and people in the diaspora, send those stories in. We'd love to look at them and find ways to include them in our upcoming episodes. Send them to bndcpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you soon.